Well, good morning. It's a, an honor to be with you again. I thank you very much for the invitation. This morning, we're going to look at the prophet Elijah, not his entire life, because that would take months and months of sermons, but a particular incident that occurred in his life, and that was the incident in which he confronted the prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel, which is very, very near the modern city of Haifa, if you're familiar with the geography in the area. Elijah has a very important name. It, it means basically Jehovah or Yahweh, as modern scholars tell us it's more likely pronounced, is God. And the reason why that name is so important is because at the time when Elijah was a prophet to the nation of Israel, that's the northern ten tribes which had broken off from the country, um, there was a, a, a deep uh, depression in religion. Uh, the kings of the northern kingdom, none of whom were good, had descended into gross idolatry. Uh, the household of a man named Omri, whose uh, name is attested in ancient manuscript, monuments. You can go to the British Museum in London and see the name Omri inscribed in stone from thousands of years ago. Omri had a son named Ahab, and Ahab had married a wicked woman whose name lives in infamy, Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Sidon is a town in modern-day Lebanon, north of modern-day Haifa. And she was given to Baal worship and worship of the false female god Ashtaroth. And she had built a special temple in Samaria, that's the northern kingdom's name, for this false god Baal. And the scripture tells us that the idolatry and the departure from the god of Abraham and Isaac and Israel was as deep as it had ever been. It was gross immorality. And we don't know about all the false practices which accompanied worship of the false gods, but we do know in some cases there was child sacrifice, there was temple fornication, all sorts of evil associated with these false gods. And yet the God of Israel, whose name was traditionally Jehovah, more recently pronounced Yahweh, and shown in our scriptures with the four letters, L-O-R-D, all in caps. Whenever you read, see the name Lord in all caps, that's a, a substitute for the Hebrew name Yahweh or Jehovah. The, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob had been departed from. When I was trying to decide what to preach on this morning, I remembered the last time I was here, I spoke about Hannah. You may remember that, First Samuel 1 and 2. A woman of prayer, but a woman in distress. And um, I was trying to search around for a topic, and I thought, well, what are some of the most dramatic passages in Scripture? Because all of us like drama. You know, we all can identify with Martin Luther standing before the Emperor Charles V and saying, here I stand, I can do no other. This poor Augustinian monk from the backwaters of Germany confronting the most powerful man in all the earth and saying, kill me if you must, but I can't depart from the God I worship. Well, Elijah's story is like that. Elijah's story is filled with drama. He brought upon the nation of Israel a severe famine in which people were starving. They were without any water for three and a half years. Elijah um, is known to us in scripture as one of the three characters that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember when Jesus showed his glory to his disciples? There was the Lord Jesus and there was Moses, the great lawgiver. And next to the two was Elijah who is symbolic of all the prophets of God in the Old Testament. Elijah is mentioned by the Apostle James in his letter. 
James says, are any among you sick? We can all identify with that. Are any among you sick? Pray for that person. Pray for yourself that you'll be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he lapses into a bit of history lesson. And James says, you remember Elijah. Of course, every good Jew would remember Elijah. Jew was a man, uh, Elijah was a Jewish man with like passions, like feelings, like emotions, like tribulations as we have. And yet he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And for the space of three and a half years, it didn't rain. And he prayed again and asked God to send rain, and God sent rain. I don't know about you, but I have some difficulty identifying with Elijah, thinking he was like me, because I have so little uh, fortitude in my prayer life. And when I'm faced with physical calamities, illness, death, suffering, I tend to think, well, it's nothing can be done about it. But something can be done about it. Elijah was a man of prayer. And the third reference to Elijah I want to call your attention to in the New Testament is that Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. Maybe you know what the reference to a type is. You all know what a typewriter used to be. We all used to have typewriters with computers. Most of us don't have them anymore. But a typewriter would take a piece of type and write with it. <laughs> the, the, the finger of the typewriter would hammer against the roll which had the paper on it and impress uh, some, some ink upon the paper. And that little letter Z or X or Y or whatever it was, was the type. Just like in olden days, printing was done by setting type, taking little individual letters and lining them up, and then you could make many copies of the same document, print them in that way. Well, Elijah was a type. The alternative is called an anti-type. And John the Baptist was the anti-type. He was the impression that Elijah was the example of. And uh, Jesus confirmed this in Matthew eleven fourteen. He says, Elijah has been here. He was John the Baptist. Now, some people are confused by that because when John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? Because the people wondered this mighty miracle worker, John the Baptist, who was baptizing and preaching with such power and in such an unusual way. He said, no, I'm not Elijah. And I think what he meant was, I'm not Elijah reincarnated. And he wasn't Elijah reincarnated. But later Jesus was asked and he said, John the Baptist was Elijah. So we talked a little bit about who Elijah was. Uh, let me just ask you to think a little bit about when he was working. He was working in a time of national crisis. I think we all can identify with times of national crisis, whether it be a time of great loss after the destruction of the Twin Towers in Manhattan in 2001, whether it be a time of war as in the end of World War I or the Vietnam War. Um, this was a crisis which was provoked by a denial of the God of the people, Yahweh, the Lord. The people had turned their back on him. They had provoked God. They had set up a wooden image, according to 1 Kings 16.33, in order to expressly worship this false god, Baal, at the instance of the crown prince of Sidon, Jezebel. It was also a time of miracles. We read that when Elijah announced that there wouldn't be any more rain, he went out to the wilderness and he was fed by ravens. Now, ravens are birds of, uh, they, they will scrounge about for anything they can get. The likelihood that a raven would bring bread and give it to Elijah is almost unthinkable. It was a miracle. Yet God said it would happen and it did. We also read in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, that uh, 
Jesus, uh, excuse me, that Elijah went up to the Sidonian region, which you'd think of all places he'd be least welcomed at. That was the headquarters of Jezebel and, and uh, Baal worship. And he went to a widow's house and he asked her for some food and she said, I've only got enough to feed my son and me for a day and then we're going to die. And Elijah said, you bring me food first and God will take care of you. And she obeyed. And the scripture says that the, the cruise of oil and the barrel of meal that she had didn't fail until it rained again. That was a miracle, clearly. And then that same widow's son died and Elijah raised him from the dead. Something almost unheard of in the annals of history. It was a time of miracles. It was a time of, of national crisis, a time of miracles. And finally, it was a time when good was called evil and evil was called good. You remember the story about how after three years, three and a half years of great famine, Ahab approached uh, Elijah and Elijah, he recognized him and said, are you the one who's troubling Israel? And Elijah responded, I'm not the one troubling Israel. You're the one troubling Israel by telling the people to worship this false god. It was a time when good was called evil and evil was called good, as mentioned in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Light was considered darkness and darkness was considered light. The bitter was considered sweet and the sweet was considered bitter. So we've talked about who Elijah was and when he worked. Um, I do want to mention, I mentioned the three years, three and a half years. There's what skeptics would call a contradiction in scripture here. Now I believe the Bible is without error. So whenever you face something which appears to be a contradiction, you need to do more than just pass over and say, well, I don't understand it. Sometimes there's passages in scripture which we don't understand, and after thorough research, we've not come up with an answer. And in those instances, we have to say, well, the Bible is true. I can't explain or I don't understand why it appears to have an error there, but I can live with that because someday I'll find out. It's beyond me. I'm not God. I can't understand all these things. But in this particular apparent contradiction, it's easy to understand. If there was a famine for three years, I'm sorry, if there was a famine for three and a half years, then there was also a famine for three years. Does that make sense? And the fact that in one case it says it was three and a half years, three years and six months, and another place it says three years is not a contradiction, but it's a distinction. And it makes us question why is that difference in there? And I think the answer is this. Elijah had prayed that it would not rain six months before he had this first encounter with Ahab. When Elijah appears on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it's almost like Melchizedek. He's a man with no ancestry. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know what his upbringing was. He just appears and he tells Ahab, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And then he disappears. And for three years, Ahab's looking for him, trying to find out where this one is who's causing all this trouble, not realizing that he, Ahab, was the one who's causing all the trouble. Well, I think that uh, Elijah had read the scriptures, and the scriptures clearly said in the book of Deuteronomy that if the people turn to idolatry, I will cause it not to rain. I'll give you the reference in a few minutes. But it's as plain as day that God had said when the people turn to idolatry, I'm going to stop the heavens. Water will no longer come down. And so I think six months before his first encounter with Ahab, Elijah claimed the promises of God in scripture. Now, you understand there are false teachers out there who say anything you name, you can claim. God will give you whatever he asks for. That's not true. But if the scripture promises to it, you can name it and claim it. 
sorry. <laughs> if, the promise, if the scripture promises something, you can go to the bank with it. It's true, it will happen. And the scripture said in Deuteronomy that if my people turn to idolatry, I'll stop the heavens. And I think Elijah then found that verse and meditated upon it and prayed about it and prayed about it, said, Lord, don't send any more rain. Whether there was any supernatural revelation through a dream or through a vision or some intuition that he had, we're not exactly told. And it's vain to speculate, but he somehow had a conviction that this was going to happen so that when Ahab was available and Elijah could confront him. And I suspect after six months of drought, it must have seemed rather dry in the land and people were wondering, well, when's it gonna rain again? Elijah said, it's not gonna rain again till I say so, King Ahab, bye. And he went off and they couldn't find him. We know later, three years later, that Ahab and his servants were searching the land for Elijah, but they couldn't find him. God was protecting him. This morning, if you want to have notes, I noticed in the bullet in this room for some notes, I have three points. Every good sermon has three points. <laughs> the first point is that God hates indecision. How long will you waver between two choices here is the first question Elijah asked the people. Secondly, the Lord loves long odds. The Lord loves long odds. And thirdly, the Lord answers with fire. If you are given to alliteration, you might call these three points a serious compromise, a solemn confrontation, and a sacred challenge. The Lord hates indecision. Before we get to that, let me just tell you a few more things we do know about Elijah. He's called Elijah the Tishbite. Several times he's called the Tishbite. We're not exactly sure why. There seems to have been a town east of the Jordan called Tishba, Maybe he's called a Tishbite because he was from that town. Uh, some have speculated there was a town in Samaria called Tishba. We're not sure. Uh, he's also said to be from the region of Gilead. Now, we do know where that was. That clearly was, was east of the Jordan and north of the, uh, of the Dead Sea, uh, a region referred to frequently in Scripture. Uh, he's called a man of prayer by James in James 5, 17 through 18, hence the title to my sermon. He's called by James a man of like passions as us. And we know that from the other passages that we're not going to study this morning. He suffered severe depression. Whether it was clinical depression or whether it was like we all have from time to time a case of the blues, we're not sure. But he was really down. He was really discouraged. He was almost suicidal at one point. He was frightened, as any of us would have been if we were an outlaw from the king who was an absolute monarch. He needed rest and food. He got hungry. He got tired, so much that he was overbroad. We read a little later that miraculously he traveled 40 days on the strength of one meal. And when he got to his destination, he said, why don't you take my life now, Lord? I'm, I don't have any purpose here anymore. I've done what you've told me to do. I've told the king what you told me to tell him. I would just as soon be dead. We've all known people who have expressed that. Perhaps some of you have loved ones who've taken their own lives. Perhaps you've been tempted to that sin. It's, it's, it's a hard, hard thing to deal with. We don't have all the answers. But Elijah was almost at that point, if not there. Uh, the prophet Malachi in chapter four, verse five, says, I will send my messenger before the face of my Messiah. I will send Elijah. And that's why there's a tradition among Jews, even to this day, often to leave an unfilled seat at the table during the Passover in case Elijah shows up 
they can sit at the seat. And that's why there were all the questions about whether John the Baptist was Elijah or not. And in fact, you remember in the great profession by Peter at Caesarea Philippi, when he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus' first question is, well, who do people say that I am? And some of the apostles said, well, some people say you're Elijah. They were expecting Elijah because Malachi had promised that Elijah would come. The message of John the Baptist was the very same message which Elijah brought, and that was repent. It was the same message that Jesus preached, repent. Yes, we must believe, but faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. If you have a coin which has heads on both sides, you know it's a counterfeit. If you have a coin which has tails on both sides, you can't take it into the bank and change it. It's got to have heads and tails, and that's what faith and repentance are like. If you have real faith, you will repent of your sin, be sorrowful, and turn from it. And if you have real repentance, it's not just sadness and remorse like Judas had. You'll have faith because God promises salvation to those who repent and believe. Like Noah of old, who 2 Peter 2.5, Peter calls a preacher of righteousness. Elijah was a preacher of righteousness. John the Baptist um, was a, a type. Uh, Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. Another point I want to make is that uh, he, he was uh, uh, like John. John 5.35 says he was, John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light. You know how sometimes you'll light a fire and it'll flare up and it'll be a huge conflagration and then it goes out and you have to start it again. And, and that's kind of the way it appeared with John the Baptist. He was very well-known, very uh, well-spoken of, popular among the people. All of Judea and all of Jerusalem went out to hear his preaching and then he got arrested and beheaded by Herod and he was gone. Elijah, we don't know anything about before he had his confrontation with Ahab. Uh, we know his death was not a real death. He was carried up by angels into heaven, a whirlwind, and it was accompanied by chariots of fire. I think there was a movie by that name, wasn't there? Well, let me, let me explain to you my points this morning. First of all, the Lord hates indecision. Zeal is required if you're to follow Jesus Christ. You can't be a lackadaisical Christian. If you are, you're not a real Christian. Remember what uh, the apostle said in Revelation 3, 15 to 16? The apostle said, our Lord says of the church in Laodicea, you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. God doesn't want lukewarm followers. In John 2, 16 to 17, Jesus was in the temple and he saw that the, 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 the people were, had turned it into a bazaar, a, a, you know, a farmer's market. You could buy animals, you could buy sacrifices, all sorts of things. And he, he said, get out of here. And he cast them out of the temple courts. And he overturned the tables that had the money that were carefully out there to count. He said, I don't care about your money. Get it out. This, my house, the Lord says my house is to be a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And it's written that the disciples then remembered that it had been said in the word of God, the zeal for my house has eaten me up. That's Psalm 69 and verse 9. The zeal for my house has eaten me up. And they remembered that. And they said, this is the fulfillment of that. And then, of course, you remember how his enemies said, well, what sign are you going to give us to prove that you have the right to do this? 
And Jesus said, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. He was referring to the temple of his body. But that was the main charge against him when he went to trial before Pilate many years later, three years later. God requires determination and he hates indecision. You remember Joshua's challenge to the people in Joshua 24, 15? He said to the people as he was about to depart this life, he said, choose today whom you're going to serve. You're going to serve the gods of the Egyptians, the, the Egyptians who drowned in the Red Sea when the floodwaters overtook them and we escaped? Or you're going to serve the gods of these Canaanites whose land you're now enjoying, who, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were driven out by hornets. And you have it for free. It's your land now. It was promised to Abraham, but you got it. You're going to serve the gods of the Canaanites. You're going to serve the gods of... Choose today who you're going to serve. Be reasonable about this. And, and the same word comes to us. We need to be reasonable about our faith. You know, faith isn't believing what you know not to be true. Faith is believing in something you can't see. You cannot see God today. God generally does not speak to people in audible voices today. We have to rely upon the words of scripture and the, and the world laughs. They say, oh, you're just believing those cunningly devised fables that are written down in the Bible. Well, every religion has their holy book. Every religion has their faith. Why is your faith better than anyone else's faith? Well, the answer is because it's true. Jesus did live and die and rise from the dead. Thomas Manton, the great Puritan preacher, said this, quote, he brings the business to a trial to give them not liberty to be of whatever religion they pleased, but to think about it and to choose the best religion. Jesus was repeatedly distinguished in the scripture from the scribes. Those were the law um, giver, the law enforcers, the, the lawyers, shall we say, of the day. It says in scripture that Jesus didn't teach as the scribes did because Jesus taught with authority. Now this isn't to say we're to be brash or rude with unbelievers. It doesn't mean we have to be an affront to those of different faiths. We should show kindness and love to everyone as Jesus did. But you need to stand up for what is true. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, nobody can serve two masters. You're going to be the servant of somebody. Are you going to be the servant of God? Or are you going to be servant of riches, your own desires, the things that the world has to offer? Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said, uh, Matthew tells us, from the, Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And although in our country, in our day, there's not much opportunity for persecution unto death for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ in years gone by and in other places around the world. There are those who are tortured and killed because of their faith. From the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. But then he says, but the violent take it by force. No one enters a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man, said Jesus in Mark 3, 27. I'm going to read to you a short passage from John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this was written in the 17th century by a man who lived in England, but he suffered 12 years in prison for his faith. 
12 years without a trial. It was a gross injustice. He, he tells the story in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, of a character by the name of Graceless, who lives in a place called the City of Destruction. And one day he meets a man named Evangelist, who says to him, you need to flee from the wrath to come. And he goes home and his family says, hey, get some sense into your head, man. He, there's nothing wrong with you. But he has this heavy burden on his back and he can't get rid of it. Nobody can help him get rid of this burden, which is his sin and his guilt, his knowledge that he's not right with God. And so Graceless encounters Evangelist again. He says, what shall I do? And Graceless will flee from the wrath to come. And he says, well, where shall I flee? And, and he said, well, do you see that gate in the distance? And Graceless says, no, I don't see it. And, and Evangelist says, well, do you see a light? And Graceless says, I think I do. And Evangelist says, you go toward that light. And after a while, you'll see the gate. And when you get to the gate, go through the gate. And somebody there will tell you where to go next. So along his journey, Graceless comes upon various wonderful stories. And the language is a bit out of date now, but Crossway um, Books has recently printed a good modern uh, paraphrase of the original edition. I put in a plug for the book. I'm not getting a profit of it. But uh, I can give you more details if you want to later. But at, uh, one of the adventures that Graceless experiences, and his name becomes Christian at some point in the journey, uh, when he comes to the foot of the cross and the burden rolls off his back, he becomes Christian, and Christian is taken to a place called the House of the Interpreter. Again, it's an allegory, it's a picture of something different, and the House of the Interpreter we can understand to be the teaching of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And in the House of the Interpreter, there are wonderful stories given. I urge you to, to, to reread Capone's Progress or read it for the first time if you haven't read it before. But I want to tell you about one of the adventures that Christian faces in the House of the Interpreter. It's a scene that's outside the house. And you have to allow some literary freedom here. It's not, it's hard to kind of imagine how this fits in exactly, but let me just read this passage to you. It's not too long. Um, the, the writer says, I saw also that the interpreter took him again by the hand and led him into a pleasant place where was built a stately palace, beautiful to behold at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted. He saw also upon the top thereof people walking who were clothed in gold. And Christian said, may I go in there? The interpreter took him and led him toward the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of people desirous to go in, but they dared not. There also sat a man at a, at a table some distance back with, with a book and a pen uh, to uh, take the name down of anybody who was going to enter in. He saw also in the doorway stood many men in armor to guard the door, keep people out, resolved that uh, men who wanted to enter in would hurt, be hurt if they did. Now Christian was amazed, and at last, when everybody fell back and wouldn't go in for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance there's that 17th century language, a man of a very stout countenance, um, come up to the man that sat there at the table and said, put down my name, sir. Which when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put on his helmet on his head, and rush toward the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, 
fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he'd received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace, saying, come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. So he went in and was clothed with such garments as they, gold. And then Christian smiled and said, I think I know the meaning. Now I'm just going to read you one or two verses here from the book of Acts to tell you what I think the meaning is. We read in, in, in the book of Acts that in Derby, Paul preached the gospel and returning through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, he strengthened their souls and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, quote, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. And that's my situation, that's your situation. You know, Christians aren't immune to troubles in this life. We deal with cancer. We deal with death of young ones. We deal with disabilities, mental illness, depression, loved ones who maybe commit suicide. We, we deal with all these church splits, unjust treatment at our jobs. The world is filled with troubles. And that's the armed men standing at the gate to keep you from going into the kingdom of heaven. And how are you going to get through? Not by shrinking back and saying, well, that's a pretty tough thing to do. By, by pulling out the sword of the spirit, the Bible, God's holy word, and putting on the helmet of salvation, keeping your mind fixed upon the truth and not upon the lies of this world, and charging forth. God hates indecision. God expects us to be bold. I've taken too much time already, but let me quickly give you the other two points. The Lord loves long odds. Baal had 450 prophets. We read it earlier. Elijah was all alone. 450 to 1. I like those odds if I'm for Baal. <laughs> it sounds pretty good if you're going to be a betting man to bet on the 450 rather than the 1. But it was a wicked time. Wicked Queen Jezebel. Uh, Elijah was alone there. Now, we read earlier in chapter 1 Kings 18 that there was a servant, a head butler of Ahab named Obadiah, not the prophet Obadiah who wrote the book in the Bible, but somebody else with the same name. And this Obadiah, when Elijah says, go tell King Ahab I'm here. He says, you're crazy? I go tell King Ahab you're here and then he comes here and you'll be gone and then I'll be in trouble. No, Elijah says, I'll be here. And he said, but haven't you heard what I did? I took a hundred prophets of the Lord, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, and I hid them in a cave, 50 in one and 50 in another. And I brought them water, scarce water in the, in, in the drought. And I brought them food. And, I, and I'm the number two guy under King Ahab. If he had found that out, do you imagine what he would have done with me? I, I've, I've served the Lord. I've ventured. I've done some things. Don't I get a break? And Elijah said, you go tell Ahab that I'm here. So Obadiah obeyed. He took the sword out, he put the helmet on, and he charged ahead. Thirdly, the Lord answers with fire. The Lord answers with fire. Now, it's easy to make a mistake here. Even the apostles made a mistake here. They thought that because Elijah called down fire from heaven... But God wanted them to call down fire from heaven. 
the story here of the confrontation on Mount Carmel is followed by several other adventures in the life of Elijah. And we don't have time to go into all of them, but in the first chapter of the book of 2 Kings, we read about one of the wicked kings who went out to arrest Elijah. And Elijah prayed, God, destroy them. And 50 people and their captain were burned up with fire from heaven. So when they didn't come back, the king sent another 50 people out. And Elijah prayed again, and fire came down from heaven and burned them up, and their captain and another 50 were dead. Well, you can imagine when you were the captain of the third 50 that was sent out, you'd be a little bit cautious, because you would have heard what happened from the people who observed that. And this third captain came to Elijah, and he said, just tell me what to do. And he went along and followed what Elijah told him to do. In the New Testament, the apostles in Luke 9, 55, when there were some people who were claiming the name of Christ, but didn't follow along with them, didn't do the same things. You see, they were Baptists, or they were Methodists, or they were Lutherans, or they were Nazarenes, or, you know, they weren't Presbyterians. <laughs> Jesus said, you don't understand. You're not here to call on fire from heaven against those who differ from you. You don't understand what spirit you're of, and, and we need to remember that. That's an error that we could make that even the apostles made, is being angry with those who disagree with us and are wrong. There's a lot of people that are wrong. We're wrong in some areas. I'm sure that you think I'm wrong, and I think you're wrong in some areas. But how do you treat people that you think are wrong? You don't ask God to destroy them. That's wrong to do that. As Christians, we should be gentle and kind. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We have an inclination toward vengeance. And yet even in the famous passage in John 3, where we all remember, John said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse, 17 in John 3 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. If people go to hell, it's not because Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world to save the world. Anyone who will receive him, he says, come unto me. Whosoever will believe on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Paul in Romans 12 says, don't repay evil for evil. Regard the good things in the eyes of all. If it's possible, live at peace with everyone. Don't avenge yourselves, because it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the next time you get angry with somebody, maybe you've been justly wronged, or I should say unjustly wronged, and you want to get even, remember that's not your spirit. You're the spirit of Christ, which when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was persecuted, he didn't turn against those who were persecuting him. Well, I guess one question we have to ask is why fire was such a good test. There was two questions in the passage we heard. Um, the first question Elijah asked the people is, if, 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 why are you faltering between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And the scripture says the people answered not one word. But then later he says, well, let's have two, two altars here and one for Baal's prophets and one for me. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And the people say, well, that's good. We, we agree with it. That's, that's a good report you're suggesting there. Why were they silent the first time? I suggest like you and me, the reason they were silent the first time may not have been that they engaged in Baal worship, but maybe they had children who had. Maybe they had a wife or a husband who had. 
Maybe they had a parent, had parents who are outside of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. And we're not quick to judge when the people who are being judged are ones we love, ones we have natural affection for. There's a tendency on our part to think, well, they must be in heaven. Yeah, God wouldn't hurt anybody. He's gentle and kind. That's why the introduction to your bulletin has that, that passage about how God in flaming fire will bring judgment upon those who don't believe the gospel, those who will not obey Jesus Christ. Fire was a good test, uh, partly because the, Baal was known as the god of fire. God, if anybody could bring down fire from heaven, Baal could bring down fire. The people said, yeah, that's a good, that's, we like fire as a test. And uh, you remember that uh, in the burning bush before Moses, the bush burned with fire, but it wasn't consumed, indicating that God was there, it was holy. And of course, in the day of Pentecost, the tongues of fire came down, appeared upon the people. No one was burned by them, but there was the appearance like tongues of fire over the crowd, which were anointed with the Holy Spirit. Notice particularly here that when, when, when Ahab, excuse me, Elijah says, I want you to build your altar, and I'll build my altar. And we read specifically that he cut the wood up. You might just glance over that and say, well, that's not very significant. And why, why does he go into all that detail about how he did it? He goes into all that detail to tell us that Elijah was exactly fulfilling the specific law of God in Leviticus chapter 1 as to burnt sacrifices. Each of the different sacrifices, the burnt offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering, five different offerings in the opening chapters of Leviticus. The burnt offering, it says specifically, you're to cut the wood up. And I suspect the people then didn't know why, and I'm not even sure I could explain to you now why, but that was what God said to do. So the next time you tend to think, well, I'm a little smarter than God. I know he says I can't tell a white lie, but a white lie's good. Uh, he says I shouldn't think lustful thoughts toward another person, but and he, you know, it's just my thoughts. Uh, we need to be schooled in the law of God, and the law of God is spiritual and it's deep. Fire consumed, first of all, the burn sacrifice, then it consumed the wood, then it consumed the stones, then it consumed the dust, then it even licked up the water which was in the trough around the sacrifice. It, the fire didn't come up from the bottom. See, most of the time when you're burning a sacrifice, you light the fire under it, if you have any experience with trying to start a barbecue. You know, you want to get the fire underneath the coals so that they will flare up. Nobody takes a match and drops it on top of the, the, uh, fire, the, the what you're trying to burn, if, if you know what you're doing. But this fire came down from above, clearly showing that it was God who had brought it. Quickly, some lessons. Notice that God sends rain. It's God who sends the rain. God created the rain. Job 5.10, Job said, Yahweh gives the rain. Psalm 147, verse 8, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds. The Lord provides rain for the earth, and he makes the grass to grow on the mountains and gives food to the beasts and to the ravens. When we have a drought in our country, we need to pray for rain. God answers prayers. God answers prayers. That's the James point in James 5. How did Elijah know it would stop raining? Because in Deuteronomy 11, 16 to 17, it said, quote, Take heed lest you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up heaven that there be no rain. It had been promised, and Elijah believed it, and he prayed and asked it would happen. Thirdly, God's judgments always imply hope. 
Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach against that wicked city and say, 40 days and the city's going to be destroyed. No, unless you repent. No, but there's a possibility of it not happening. Just 40 days and Nineveh's going to be destroyed. That was the message, the whole message. Well, that's a downer. I mean, how do you expect to win friends and influence people if you appear on the scene and you say, God's about to destroy you? But we learn from chapter 4 of Jonah that all along Jonah suspected and he knew that God was a God of mercy. And I suspect it colored some of his preaching. He didn't want to tell those Assyrians, whose capital city was Nineveh, that there was hope if they would repent. But they repented. And God relented over the judgment which he had pronounced. So what's the lesson to us? The lesson to us is God answers prayers. And God wants you to pray to him. And don't use an excuse, I can't see God. And don't use as an excuse, it won't make any difference. That's unbelief. You can't just say what you want. I want a million dollars and expect God to automatically respond to you like a, like a, a bellhop would do. He's God. But he wants you to bring your request to him. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Everyone who asks receives. And him that seeks finds. And to him that knocks it is opened. Faith that God can do something. God can do anything. But you need to pray that God would do something. Save your marriage. Turn the hearts of your rebellious children. Save our country. Provide godly leadership in high places. In your church. In your community. In your nation. In your world. God cares about your prayers. When's the last time you prayed for the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria? When was the last time you prayed for those poor people in Ukraine who are being bombed to smithereens? When was the last time you prayed for corruption in high places in the United States? Don't just complain. I'm not saying don't be politically active. I'm not saying uh, don't be informed. I'm saying just the opposite. Pray as well as doing the things we're required to do. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we worship you. We know you are the God of fire who could, if you wish to, at this very moment, consume this place and all of us in fire, just as we heard in recent days of that explosion in Reading where several people were killed because gas ignited. We know you could do that here if you wish to. We pray you would not. We pray that you would protect us and our loved ones. We pray that you would give more time for those we've prayed for in the past to come to Christ, to follow him, to believe him, and to live lives worthy of him. We thank you for the peace in which we've worshiped this morning. Use these words to sanctify our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.